Whenever my wife Jennifer asks me, Kyle, can you do me a favor? My natural instinctive response is, sure. I don't ask questions. Sure, she's my wife. Um, it's not that way with everybody. I mean, there, there are certain people that if they say, Kyle, can you do me a favor? My instinctive response is, well, what is it? <laughs> give, me, give, give me some details here before I just blindly agree to go kill all the rats in your attic or whatever. You know, well, tell me what the favor is, then we'll see. You know? And I think a lot of us are that way. But before we step into something, we like to have a fair idea of what we're stepping into, right? What am I getting into? What are the details? You know, it doesn't really work this way with God. I mean, first of all, God doesn't ask favors. He issues commands. But if you think about it, when, when God calls a person to obey him, to follow him, to go and do something, God doesn't always give a lot of details up front. It's just kind of the way he works. If you think about it, if you remember way back in Genesis, God told Adam and Eve, you do, you, you do not eat from this particular tree. He didn't tell them why it was forbidden. He just said, don't. Uh, later on in the same book of Genesis, God told Abraham, leave everything and go to a land that I will show you. But God didn't tell him specifically how to get there. He didn't draw a map for him. Abraham had to leave and God showed him along the way. And that's, see, that's called faith. In, in everything that God calls us to do, if he doesn't give us all the details up front, it's because God calls us to live by faith and not always by what we can see. And thankfully, all the Bible is full of people, wonderful examples of those who obeyed God even when the future was unclear to them, even when things uh, were unseen. But the story of Jonah is actually very different. Jonah, Jonah knew what God was calling him into. He just didn't want to do it. Uh, Jonah, for context here, Jonah lived about 750 years before the birth of Christ. And he was a prophet of God, one of the prophets. To be a prophet was no small thing. It was a high privilege, a huge responsibility that, uh, that God would entrust to specific men, certain men, his word to go and declare to the people of Israel uh, God's message, okay? But Jonah's story begins very much unlike most of the prophets. Jonah actually begins with a shock because what we have is not a prophet of God joyfully obeying God's command to go. What we have instead is a betrayal, a betrayal, a man of God who runs away from God because he thinks he knows better than God and he will not do it. And uh, watch how this story unfolds. We just read it a moment ago, kind of that chapter in its totality. Let's break it down a little bit here because it's re really a fascinating story. We're not really going to touch on the fish portion of Jonah today. That's more for next week. That's the most famous part of the story, but really the story is much more. And look with me at verse 1 again. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. For its wickedness, their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa and he found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You notice that mentioned twice, from the presence of the Lord. God up front, I mean, we, we start in action right away. There's no buildup. Right away, God issues a command to the prophet Jonah. He says, and it seems very simple, he says, go to Nineveh and cry out against them. Proclaim to them their sin and their wickedness, for it has come up before me. It's boiled over, 
And God says, it's time to do something about it. You go and give that message. Well, in response, Jonah goes as far in the opposite direction as he possibly can. Nineveh is east. Jonah goes west. And west, Tarshish, was to the Jews the furthest known western part of the, of the world. It's the furthest part of the world they were even aware of. That's where Jonah decides to go, as far from the presence of the Lord as he possibly can. Now, of course, there's no such thing as fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Jonah should have known that, Psalm 139, right? We read it. But Jonah is dead set on avoiding what God has called him to do. So his running and eventually his sailing are for us an example of disobedience. He doesn't really think he can get away from God. He just doesn't want to do what God calls him to do. Now, the question is why? You know, if, if you've ever read or heard the story of Jonah, oh, he runs from God, that's terrible. But, but a lot of times we don't talk about why he would, I mean, what's motivating here? Is it just plain disobedience? No, there, there's more to the story here that we don't necessarily see right at first. See, God is not calling Jonah to do what most biblical prophets were called to do, which was to carry a message from God to the people of Israel, God's people. An Israelite prophet goes to God's people and speaks the message, right? But God is actually telling Jonah to do something different. He says, go to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, non-Jewish people, non-Israelites. This is the Israelite prophet going to a faraway place to a people who do not believe in or worship the God of Israel. And so God tells Jonah to go to the non-Jewish pagans and tell the message to them. Now, that's strange enough by itself. But what's interesting is that the Assyrians, the Ninevites, these were the hated enemies of Israel. These were not just some people group out yonder. These were the sworn enemies of God's people. Uh, They have been referred to, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, they've been referred to as a terrorist state of the ancient world. That these were people who were godless and cruel. They they uh, They were a ruthless people. They ransacked other cultures and left no survivors. Uh, we, would, we would probably put the Assyrians in, in a similar category to ISIS of modern day or Nazi Germany. These were not good people who were slightly misinformed on some things. They were bad. They were a people who mocked God and they did great violence to the people of Israel. Okay. And so for one, think about how dangerous a mission this might be for Jonah, for a prophet of God from Israel to waltz in by himself to this great city of Nineveh and call them all sinners and tell them God's judgment is coming. That might be a suicide mission for all we know. But it's even more than that. Why does Jonah turn tail and run in the opposite direction of Nineveh? It's because he knows what God is up to. He knows what God's intention in sending him to the city really is. This is not a mission of judgment. This is a mission of mercy. Jonah knows that God desires to forgive the Ninevites and bring them to repentance. We don't see that all today, but we see it more clearly as the book of Jonah goes on, that God wants them to repent from their sin and turn their hearts to him. And Jonah wants nothing to do with that. He's dead set against that. Because in Jonah's mind, God cannot act this way. God can't be the kind of being that would somehow allow unrighteousness to go unpunished that God would would show mercy to wicked pagans, people who are our enemies. God can't be that way. Uh, If if you were here last week, the last two weeks, we we talked about the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. It's interesting that the prodigal son really has a a lot of correlation to this story of Jonah. You know, the first part of the prodigal son is about a runaway son. 
And Jonah's about a runaway prophet. But really, more truly, what Jonah exemplifies here is the heart of the older son. The older son in that story was very devoted to God, but only to the kind of God who loves the good people and hates the bad people. Only the kind of God who does things fairly, where the good get rewarded and the evil always get punished. God favors Israel and he smites the wicked pagans. That's the God that I worship. See, that's Jonah's God. And so in Jonah's mind, the enemies of Israel should be dashed to pieces. They can't be forgiven. They can't be drawn to repentance. And that seems like that's what God wants to do. And so Jonah says no, and he runs the other way. He can't conceive of a God who would be gracious to these people. And so he refuses to give the message. And then he hops on a boat and he sails away. Okay? Uh, now, this is where the story really gets interesting. We're going to talk more about what we just mentioned as we go later, because Jonah's character comes into fuller focus, and God's mercy does too, especially in chapters 3 and 4. But here's where the story for today gets really fascinating. Jonah gets on this boat thinking he's going to, I don't know what he's thinking, but maybe I can get away from this, this mission that God's called me to. Verse 4, not so fast, the Lord hurled or threw a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. So God sends a great and terrible storm on the sea. It puts the fear of death upon every man, every sailor on that ship. Everybody is fearing for their lives, everybody except one, except Jonah. In the midst of this storm, what is Jonah doing? He's gone down under the deck, and he's fallen asleep. Uh, I wonder, looking at a story like this, how could anybody sleep in a situation like this. It's hard enough to sleep on a boat that's rocking on the sea. Some of y'all know that from being on a cruise or something, maybe. But in a storm where the, the, I mean, the boat's threatening to break up here, we're about to die, and Jonah's asleep. Uh, this is, uh, people have called this um, the sleep of sorrow. That it's perhaps what Jonah's experiencing right here is a form of depression where sleep is functioning as an escape from reality. That Jonah knows he is disobedient. He knows he is far from God spiritually. He can't get far from God physically. God's there, right? But Jonah knows that he's denying God's call upon his life. And in his depression, somehow maybe Jonah thinks, if I just close my eyes, then maybe God can't see me. And so he sleeps. And uh, the captain wakes him up and, and says something interesting. He accuses him. How can you sleep in a moment like this? But then he says, call on your God. And you notice if you're reading it, it's, it your, your translation is probably like mine. Lowercase g, God. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will have compassion on us and rescue us. There's so much irony right here in this story. Jonah runs away from Nineveh. Why? To avoid the non-Jewish pagans. I'm not going to go talk to those people. Then he ends up on a boat full of what? Non-Jewish pagans. He's the only Israelite, the only Jew on the boat. Everybody else is the kind of person that he deems as wicked and unworthy and the people that he's supposed to avoid. That's who he ends up on the boat with. And each one of them on the boat, they're crying out to their God. Now, there was this belief, and still in, in some parts of the world, this belief still exists, that there are a multitude of gods, a great many gods, 
And each man is crying out to his God because one of the gods, obviously, has sent this storm upon us. We need to find out who it is so we can appease him and maybe we'll all be rescued here. Okay? Um, it's also ironic, though, that everybody on the ship is very religious. Okay? Um, everybody on the ship is very prayerful. They're all praying, except for one, except for Jonah. Everybody on the ship is praying to their gods. Jonah doesn't pray a single time here in chapter 1. Uh, in fact, the, the, the pagan captain rebukes Jonah for his lack of prayer. Did you see it? Um, you're asleep instead of calling on your God? Now, y'all, I, this stands as a challenge to us right here. It stands as a challenge to me. Um, Jonah has every advantage in this story. Jonah is a prophet of God. Jonah knows the truth. Jonah worships the one true God, not a, not a multiplicity of false gods, but the one true God who created the universe. Jonah knows him and worships him, and yet his behavior in the story betrays him. All of his knowledge, all of his past obedience, perhaps, is doing him no good in this moment. Everybody else on the ship is more noble, more courageous, more sincere than God's prophet. The world, as it were, is rebuking the church right here. The Christian is the one who is failing the people who are acting in a way that that is more noble than him. Rather than being a missionary to these people, Jonah refuses to even pray for their survival. He drops the ball. We can become like this. I can become this way if we're not careful. That I can, I can like the label of Christian, I like being a Christian, and yet at the same time I might lack all of the qualities of the heart that a Christian is actually meant to be. I can, I can be a Christian in everybody's estimation, and yet at the same time I might lack mercy and love toward others and generosity and all the rest. That, that we can become the kind of people, if, if we're not careful, we enjoy the personal blessings that God gives to us but we refuse to be forgiving people, sacrificial people, honest people. And in that, we, we, we lose our credibility as witnesses to the world. We take on Christianity as just a private and personal enterprise. And it doesn't really matter how I live outwardly. It doesn't really matter what the world sees in me. Those things can be curiously uh, vacant from us. Um, it's, it's possible that you and I, because we live in the South, where it is perhaps even advantageous to call yourself a Christian. There's no risk in that for most of us. And yet live in such a way that we lack the substance of it. Man. Uh, the world doesn't need more of this kind of hypocrisy. Right? We know that. The world doesn't need fake Christians. Or even us who, we're trying to be good, but we're not really following Jesus. We're just trying to be nice and to get by. Y'all, I fall into that trap too. And what we see in Jonah here, we see the opposite, really, of what we're called to be. A genuine and faithful people who exhibit the heart and the character of God in all circumstances, even when it's difficult. See, Jonah drops the ball right here in chapter 1. He doesn't, he doesn't live as a prophet of God ought to live. Um, but I drop the ball, too. Let's, let me just be honest about things here. Okay. I do it, too. We all probably do. And so that's why this story is such a challenge to me. That the world, if, if it's ever possible, and I don't, I don't say this as in a judgmental way, I'm just saying it because this is what we believe. If, if people who don't know God 
are more self-controlled, more generous, kinder, more hospitable, more loving than me? That's a problem. Because knowing God is meant to produce those things in its purest form. We don't see that in Jonah here. Right? Now, things do get better for him. I, they don't get better for him, but he, he, Jonah turns a little bit of a corner here toward the end of chapter 1. And, I, and hopefully we'll be encouraged a little bit. He doesn't, he doesn't totally blow it in, you know, entirely here. Look at verse 7. Three things are going to happen here. Very, very important. We're just going to see them occur in the narrative. Three things. Okay, I'm going to point them out. It's beginning in verse 7. Each man said to his mate, the sailors all say to each other, Come let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. Casting lots is like, kind of like Old Testament gambling. We're going to throw these things out there. And the one that turns up appropriately, that's the person responsible. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, of course. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. All right, first thing we see, Jonah owns up to reality. He owns up to who he is and to whom he belongs to, right? I am a Hebrew, and I serve the true God of heaven, the one who created the sea and the dry land, the sea upon which we are uh, sailing right now. God created that. One God, my God, okay? But you notice Jonah doesn't answer his occupation. That's the, really the first question they ask him. What is your occupation? He doesn't answer that question. Oh, I'm a prophet of God. Cool, what does a prophet do? Well, I, you know, I encourage people to obey God's word. <laughs> you notice why like, Jonah would have avoided like, that little tidbit of information since he's really not doing his own job here in the story. Um, but more than just identifying who he is, Jonah does something that is necessary here. He points them to God, the God who created all things, not their multitude of idols, but to the true God who created everything, including the stormy sea upon which we are sailing. Now, that becomes significant that they recognize who God is. That becomes significant as the story goes. Uh, so that's the first thing. Second thing, look at verse 11. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Uh, second thing, very important, Jonah offers himself as a sacrifice for the rest. Jonah has some sense of what's going on here and how to, how to solve the problem. He knows the storm is his fault, and he knows that these men are innocent in the matter. And so he says, give me to the sea. Let me drown. Let me die, and you will live. Now, this is really the first noble thing Jonah's done up to this point. Amen. Okay? And it's really significant. It's called, it's called substitutionary sacrifice, okay? And we're going to circle back as we end this, this message in a minute. We'll talk about it some more. So that's the second thing. Then look at verse 13. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not. They don't want to throw him overboard. See how noble-minded these guys are? They're still trying to save him. But they couldn't because the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord. The first time they, they, they are praying to God now, big G God. And they say, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord 
and made vows. Third thing that happens, an amazing thing happens. As soon as Jonah goes overboard, the storm stops. And the men turn to the one true God now in reverence and fear. They sacrifice to him and they make vows to him. This is what we call a foxhole conversion right here, where some, there's a terrible fear that grips us or an amazing miracle that we witness and people's hearts just naturally turn to God. We incline ourselves to God. These men have witnessed a miracle. And they cannot, will not, attribute it to any of their lowercase g idols. Their gods, no. They know where it came from. They know on whose account they've been saved. They, these men are truly God-conscious for the first time in their lives. They've always been religious, but now they see and know the one true God. And, and, and this almost kind of comes in spite of Jonah. Jonah didn't preach to them the power and mercy and love of God. He didn't really tell them about all that. But because they knew who his God was, and then they watched what his God did, they now turned to him, and they recognize he's not just powerful, he's merciful, he's loving, and they make their sacrifices and their vows. They've turned to God. Um, in all of this story, uh, the word for Jonah, at least the word that I keep coming back to, is the word anti-hero. An anti-hero is somebody who makes up the central role of a story, but, but is not necessarily an admirable person, not somebody that we're meant to emulate and to follow. That's kind of who Jonah is, at least here in chapter 1. Much of what God does in chapter 1 is in spite of Jonah. You notice this? Jonah runs, God comes and finds him. Jonah sends a storm, Jonah, uh, God sends a storm, Jonah falls asleep and tries to ignore it. Right? The men express nobility in prayer, and Jonah stays silent until eventually he turns a corner and realizes I've got to own this, okay? Jonah's not really an, the, the admirable character, ultimately, in this story. God has to work in spite of him. But we should be happy to see that, because if I'm honest about my own life and my own heart, I need God to work in spite of me, too. We all do. If God only did things for his glory when I really measured up to it, God would do very, very little in my life, if anything. God has to work upstream so often against our sinful hearts, even at my best I'm, I'm tinged, I'm tainted with sin, and so God has to work often in spite of me. I've got sins and contradictions and hypocrisies in my life, and so do you. I've disobeyed God's clear and direct commands, and that's since I've run from what God's told me to do. I've done that before, so have you. And so, y'all, listen, if, if we're saying, okay, what's the application of Jonah chapter 1, we need to be very careful here. Jonah's a sinner, so am I. Well, maybe if I try really hard, I can be a better sinner than him. Don't be like Jonah. Don't run from God. That, that's always the application I've heard associated with a story like this. But y'all, that really falls short here. The, the, the application for us as Christians can never be, try to be a better sinner. Try to sin less. We're dismissed. No, there's always more to the story than this, okay? Um, we're not really meant to look at Jonah and try to see how we're doing compared to him. Okay? There's more to it. Is there a story in the Bible... Can you think of one where a fearsome storm comes upon a boat and someone is asleep inside? Is that, only, is that unique to Jonah? There is a story in Mark chapter 4 in the Gospels. You don't need to turn there. But in Mark chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples get on a boat to cross the sea. And a great storm comes upon them, so much so that the disciples are fearing for their lives. They can't find Jesus, and what they realize is that he's down below deck asleep on a cushion, sound asleep. 
So the sailors, the disciples, come and rouse him with an accusation. Teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? Don't you care? Well, Jesus gets up, if you're familiar with the story, he gets up and he speaks to the storm as if it's a person. He says, hush, be still. And of course, the storm stops immediately. And the sailors, the disciples, are gripped with fear. And they look at each other and they say, who is this man that even the wind and the sea obeys him? What have we gotten ourselves into following him? This is God, right? Um, the parallels between these two stories are unmistakable, and they're not coincidental. There's no way this is an accident, y'all, that what we see in Jonah and what we see in, the, in the, the gospel account of Jesus, both Jonah and Jesus are asleep below the deck in the midst of a terrible storm, right? Both are awakened and accused. The captain accuses Jonah, the disciples accuse Jesus. Don't you care about us? Why are you sleeping? In both stories, a miracle of God is what stops the storm. And then in both stories, the sailors are overcome with fear and reverence for God, and they turn in worship of him. The story of Jonah right here is trying to point us to something greater, to something that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Now, you say, wait a minute, there's one big difference in the story for sure. They threw Jonah overboard, right? That didn't happen to Jesus. True, but y'all, even in that, Jonah's pointing us to something in shadow form that Jesus fulfills in pure bright light for us, in like flashing neon lights. There's a place, again, don't turn there, and there's a place in Matthew 12 where Jesus talks about Jonah, and he's talking about Jonah as a sign of what he's come to do, okay? And Jesus says something really interesting about himself in Matthew 12. He says, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Now, why would Jesus attach himself to Jonah? Of all the people in the, in the Old Testament that Jesus could have said, I'm like this person, but I'm even greater. I mean, he could have used any number of people. Why Jonah? Y'all think, remember in, in chapter 1, what we just read? The one truly noble thing that Jonah did? He said, toss me into the sea and you'll live. Throw me into God's judgment and you will be saved. You'll receive mercy. I, I used this phrase when I said a minute ago. This is called substitutionary sacrifice. I'll die, you won't. Right? And it worked. The storm died, the sailors didn't. Right? That's how Jonah 1 ends. Um, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, the scripture says he died as our substitute as our substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus was given over on the cross, given over for us, not just to show us a good example of what it means to believe in a cause. No, for you he died, for our sake, on our behalf. Now, whereas Jonah, Jonah was sacrificed for his own sins. He's the one who brought the calamity upon them, right? When he was thrown into the sea, right, everyone was, the innocent sailors were spared. But Jesus was sacrificed for our sins. Jesus did not bear his own guilt on the cross. He had no guilt to bear. He was perfect. And so whose guilt did he bear? He bore yours and mine. He went to the cross for us because of our sin. Jesus died for guilty people so that he might grant us through his death, he might grant us forgiveness and life, true life, 
abundant life, eternal life. That's what Jesus died to give us. Jonah uh, pitied the sailors on the boat, perhaps, or at least he felt guilty about the trouble that he had brought upon them. Jesus did not die out of pity for you. The scripture tells us over and over that Jesus died out of love for you. He didn't feel sorry for us. I'll throw you a bone. I'll help you out. No. He loved us to the very deepest part of his being. The mercy of God appeared in the form of Jesus. His kindness appeared, Titus, uh, Paul tells Titus. He loved us, and therefore he went to the cross. He proved how much he loved you by entering into the very depths of judgment for you. The judgment that we had earned and deserved in our sin, we have not had to pay. Because Jesus Christ was thrown into that judgment for us. And we are now forgiven instead. Isn't that amazing? Something greater than Jonah is here. Praise God. Uh, and, you know, that means, I mean, when we talk about walking the walk, living the Christian life, I made mention of that earlier. Jonah drops the ball, but so often we do too. We might carry the label Christian, but we don't always live it out. When we talk about the, what's our motivation, what's our, what animates us and gives us the energy and the ability to actually live the Christian life in a legitimate way. Well, it can't simply be a lot of times what we make it, which is, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. I need to be a better person. I feel guilty for not doing this more, and so I'm going to try to do that more. Right? If that's the extent of our motivation, then we're always running on a hamster wheel that we'll never get anywhere on. Because we don't have it in us to accomplish the true righteousness of God. Something has to come about within our hearts that actually changes how we think and act and decide and speak and live. And y'all, when God calls us to himself, he's not asking us for a favor. God didn't ask favors. God says, follow me, obey me, walk with me, be conformed to me. That's how a person changes. If, if you're here today, if I'm here today, just because we're trying to get a little bit better, then we're not, ultimately, we're not really in the right place. I want you to stay because I, I hope that your heart and my heart that will change, that we'll see that better is not God's desire for us. That he wants to transform our hearts. So if we're going to walk the walk, we can't simply say, well, I need to be better than Jonah, as if Jonah's the standard here. He's not. Even if Jonah had done everything right right here in chapter 1, everything right, Jonah doesn't have the power to give you life and to change your heart. That's why something greater than Jonah had to come, and that is the person of Jesus. I'm going to finish uh, this, this morning with a little, little scripture here from Ephesians 5. What Paul says, listen to, listen to this, very short. Paul says, Be imitators of God as beloved children, meaning your identity drives your behavior, right? And he says, and walk in love, live in love, walk the walk, Paul says, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, to live the Christian life, to do ultimately what Jonah didn't do, which is to live the Christian life in a way that others see the glory and the light and the beauty of God in our lives. It doesn't come from trying harder to be better, merely, right? Our effort has to be fixated on something, someone outside of us. Paul says, walk in love just as Jesus Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. That's the key. 
that only when we see Christ and what he's done for us, when we place our faith firmly in him and what he's done for us, can the heart be transformed that we might carry around not a label that says Christian, but a heart that lives it out. We only find that when we turn to him and allow him to animate us for his glory, right? Should you be like Jonah in chapter one? No, but that's not our standard. We're to walk in love because someone outside of us has loved us and was cast into judgment for us that we might know him. And by God's grace, day by day, we might even become like him. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the, for the joy and the grace of knowing that we are much more like Jonah than we want to admit. Um, I so often, I, do, I, I neglect the fruit of the Spirit in my own heart and in the way I live in the world. And, and if, if others uh, would look at my life, perhaps in any given snapshot moment, they might not see what I, what I would want them to see, what I hope they'd see. It, it might not be operating um, and so, Lord, I, I pray that if that's true for us, I think it's true for all of us, that we just confess that, that we are, we are full of contradictions and hypocrisy. We are, in many ways, perhaps just like Jonah, um, sometimes denying the truth that is in us. And so, Father, I pray that if that's, if that's true right now in any of our hearts, that we would not settle for just feeling bad and trying harder, but that we would look to Christ, the greater Jonah, the one who was given up for our sins, that our sins might be washed clean and forgiven, and the one who calls us to follow him, that he is our standard, he is our example, and he's the one who empowers us to change. And so, Father, I pray this morning for my own heart, for our hearts, that if we're not walking the walk as we know we should, as we desire to, that, Lord, you would show us how to do it that we would recognize that it's only as, as beloved children who have faith in Jesus that we're able to change. It's only as those who, who, whose, whose standard of love is the love that we've been given through Christ. Lord, fix our eyes, our hearts on Jesus, that we might live lives that reflect him and not just a shinier version of our old selves. Father, don't just make us better today. Make us different. Change us. Um, let, let the lesson of Jonah be our lesson. That uh, sacrifice has been made, not just to save us temporarily, but eternally, and to make us new. Thank you for that. In Christ's name. Amen.